Hello, uh, my name is Katie Ranham. I am a member of University Christian Church, and I am also on the preaching team here at UCC. This is a re-recording of a sermon that I delivered on April 23rd, 2023. The sermon didn't happen to be recorded that day, but a number of people have asked me about what I had to say, and so I'm re-recording it now on uh, June 15th of the same year uh, for those purposes. So if you were not there that day, um, I am going to sort of recontextualize things just a little bit now that it's June rather than April, but I will mention uh, if there was something sort of specific to my um, delivery on the 23rd that I'm repeating here now, pretending that I'm delivering it in front of a congregation now in June. So there might be a couple of asides here as I'm moving through my sermon, but I'm just going to pretend that you, the listener here in front of me, and that I'm speaking to you as I would if you actually were in front of me. Now, when I originally delivered this sermon back in April, it was the very first sermon in a series that UCC is doing on the Gospel of Luke, a series that is going to take us a good portion of the way through the summer. And in the weeks, the intervening weeks, Jeremiah Johnson and Meg Trishler and Marty Solomon have all spoken continuing in this series. So just so you know, this was the very first sermon in that series, which is why I'm also going to give a little background on Luke, some internal literary context to the Gospel of Luke. But specifically, this sermon is going to talk about the story of the crippled slash bent over woman. And I'm going to make a note about that just here in a second, the naming of that. And all of this, this background, the story of the bent over woman, all of this is going to be sandwiched inside the idea of fellowship and ask the questions of what does it mean to be in community? So a quick note here, when Luke uses the word um, crippled to describe this woman, I am going to read that. Uh, but when you hear me, Katie, talking, I am going to use the term bent over woman, both because that is specific to her condition that actually has rhetorical meaning as well as literal meaning, but also because the term crippled um, has somewhat been reclaimed by the disabled community, but if used by people who are outside of that community uh, can be troubling and, and pejorative. So again, when Luke uses the term crippled, which is a, is a historic term, I will use it. But when you hear me, Katie, speaking, I am going to say bent over woman. So um, interesting that I was asked to speak on Luke and that these passages sort of caught my attention because uh, in March, I actually went up to Shaker Heights, which is a sort of a satellite of Cleveland, because I had been invited to speak at the Shaker Historical Society. So I drove up there in March and I talked to them. They had actually asked me to talk about a historic cemetery that is now the resting place of the historic Shaker community there. Um, but I, uh, although I am a historian of religion and, and of the human body, uh, I have studied many, many different religious movements. I didn't have a, a ton of details about the Shakers, just sort of at my fingertips. So before I went to speak, of course, I did my research just like I do before I come and speak to you. So if the Shakers are not uh, a super familiar group to you, they were formed in the 1790s, actually in England, under a woman. It's a little bit unusual to have a prophetic woman. Uh, not, not, this doesn't never happen, but 
not totally usual, under a woman who came to style herself under the name Mother Anne Lee. She was a charismatic, she was prophetic, she was a visionary, and in England, which had a state church, uh, this was a problem because she was pushing back against the Church of England. So in the 1790s, after the revolution in the United States has happened, she did what many religious uh, uh, dissenters did. She and her group migrated to North America where they planted a number of very, for a time, very prosperous, very uh, famous and famously celibate communities of Shakers. So in prep for this talk, I watched a wonderful BBC documentary that I want to recommend to you. It's about an hour long. It was based on interviews with members of the then living and practicing Shaker community at Sabbath Day Lake in Maine, the, um, the state in the United States. And the name of this documentary is very memorable. It is, I don't want to be remembered as a chair. Now, those of you who say, I'm one of those people who's not familiar with the Shakers, you might be more familiar with the very beautiful, functional, simple, and elegant style of architecture and furniture and everyday home use items like baskets. And so this, I don't want to be remembered as a chair, um, is someone saying, I want my witness to be something other than the goods I leave behind. In the documentary, the documentary makers interviewed one of the living members of the Shaker community, and he was talking about how they had a process for people to come and join them. It was sort of an application process with interviews and then a period of time in which the applicant would live with the community. And most people at that stage bail out. They've gone through a long application process. They've done internal searching, but once they have to actually live with real people, they're out. And uh, the, the Shaker practitioner said, it's not because of the requirement of celibacy. Everybody knows about that. They know that coming in. When they see the realities of living in community, it's just too hard. That is why so many people opt not to become Shakers. Dietrich Bonhoeffer uh, noticed something similar in his book, Life Together. He said the following. He said, the person who loves their dream of community will destroy community. But the person who loves those around them will create community. So in thinking about all these things, let's now read Luke 13, 10 through 17, and then we will examine where it sits in the larger Gospel of Luke, what the bookends are, and what that can tell us about the story that we're about to read here. On the Sabbath, Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues, and a woman was there who had been crippled by a spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not straighten up at all. When Jesus saw her, he called her forward and said to her, Woman, you are set free from your infirmity. Then he put his hands on her and immediately she straightened up and praised God. Indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, the synagogue leader said to the people, there are six days for work, so come and be healed on these days, not on the Sabbath. The Lord answered him, you hypocrites, doesn't each of you on the Sabbath untie your ox or donkey from the stall and lead it out to give it water? 
Then should not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, who Satan has kept bound for 18 years, be set free on the Sabbath from what bound her? Then his opponents were humiliated, but the people were delighted with all the wonderful things he was doing. So the Gospel of Luke was written by, you guessed it, Luke. Luke was likely born a Gentile, and Marty Solomon, who I mentioned earlier, who is uh, a great student of Judaism and early Christianity, believes that Luke was a convert to Judaism, that he was a, a proselyte, and I trust Marty's judgment here. So Gentile background, but is living purposefully as a Jew, and he is a follower of Jesus, recording Jesus' life and ministry. At this point, listeners, I did a little uh, congregation participation and asked them to tell me what Luke's other uh, vocation was, what his profession was outside of gospel writer, and they were correct. Luke was a physician, which I think is very important because this is a story about human bodies, and Luke was a scholar of human bodies in his professional life, uh, and it's important to note here um, that medicine at the time, really up until very recently, was more of an art than a science. So he is a healer, he is an artist, he is a scholar, he is a convert, and he has followed Jesus, and now he's an author. So he is going to record, his gospel begins with the nativity, it begins with the story of Jesus' birth, it ends with the passion, or Jesus' death and resurrection and ascension, and then the story itself, the, the literature just segues right into Acts, which is his, his sequel to the Gospel of Luke. And his gospel has um, three important themes, specifically when it is talking about Jesus's ministry, which is the, the middle section of this gospel. And uh, the, the themes are these three. First, they are parables about the kingdom and warnings about being caught unawares. Now, it's very interesting because Luke spends a lot of time on these. If we look at the three synoptic gospels, so Matthew, Mark, and Luke, there are a total of 42 parables. Luke has 31, and 18 of those were unique to his recording. So if you do the math, I'm not going to do it right now. I'm a historian, not a mathematician. Um, there's a certain amount of the parables that Luke records that are are repeated in their own style in the other synoptic gospels, but 18 of those are unique to his telling. And the one we're talking about today, the healing of the bent over woman is one of those. So that's the first theme, parables about the kingdom, warnings about being caught unawares. His second theme is the meaning of the status. And often a subtext of that is how it conflicts with the status quo. Jesus's meaning about the Sabbath and his meaning is conflicting with the status quo. And finally, it is about the healing and restorative ministry of Jesus. So let's look about look, let's look at rather what's on either side of this healing of the bent over woman in Luke. And that will help us understand the meaning that we should give this story because, of course, Luke is choosing editorially how to contextualize these stories. So there's there's more to be learned here uh, besides reading uh, chapter 13 and the story of the bent over woman in isolation. 
So first off, we see a call to repent. The first story in chapter 13 is the story of the tower in Siloam, which collapsed and killed 18 people. And Jesus' followers ask him about um, why this is. Now, it's very noteworthy here about numbers and the use of numbers in scripture. They have meanings beyond a literal delivery of information. 18 people died in the Tower of Siloam, and the bent-over woman was in bondage. She was bent over in bondage for 18 years. So it's important that we note that number. Uh, and you're hearing the jingling dog tags of the dogs who live at my house. Immediately after the story of the Tower of Siloam is the parable of the fig tree, in which a, a farmer, an orchardist, wants to cut down this tree that has not produced fruit for three years, but an advocate in the story says, no, let's wait one more year, let's fertilize this tree, and then, then, if there's no fruit, we can cut it down. But there is this call for, uh, for waiting one more time to see if fruit will come. Immediately after this in Luke's telling is the story of the healing of the bent over woman, but it's unclear what the real time relationship to these previous passages is, but Luke has situated them here together for a reason. We can reasonably see that there is a real time segue from the healing of the bent over woman into the parable of the mustard and the parable of the yeast, which both ask the questions, what is the kingdom of God like? So we can see here that the story of the bent over woman is sandwiched between teachings about repentance and teachings about the kingdom of heaven. So as good students, we ask the question, why? In Luke 10 through 17, the verses on which we are focusing, it's important to note this is the last time in Luke that we are going to see Jesus in a synagogue. All this takes place in a synagogue. Luke has told us other stories about Jesus in synagogue, but this is the final time he's going to report one of these stories. So what are kind of the plot points of Luke 10 through 17? Well, first off, Jesus sees the bent over woman. And this is the only account of this happening in Luke and I, as a historian, I, I kind of made an error here. In my mind, I thought, oh, this is interesting that Jesus sees her because would not women have been segregated to uh, a, a women's section in the synagogue? No, I was wrong. That is a later invention of both the church and synagogue life. Uh, I could preach a whole sermon on that. But in this early period, in the first century at least, women and men were not segregated by sex. So this woman was in a space in which she could be seen by Jesus, and it made it possible for this to happen. The structures, social and architectural, make it possible for her to be seen. And so I want to ask a question right now of us. How can we see each other when we're separated from each other? So the plot points are that Jesus is in synagogue, he sees the bent over woman, and he calls her forward. He calls her out. He calls her to himself. Then he sets her free from her bondage, first with words, which is very notable. He uses the same language that he also uses, he, Jesus, when he forgives sins. Then he touches her, and she straightens up and praises God. Seeing, calling, speaking, touching. And she's set free. So what's the response to this? Well, the synagogue president, um, also known as the Hazan, is angry 
and he talks to the crowd, not to Jesus, notably here, he talks to the crowd about Jesus's actions, criticizing them. Jesus then calls the Hazan a hypocrite, partly because this guy doesn't confront Jesus correctly, directly, he rather addresses the crowd, and partly because of what Jesus has to say about the purpose of the Sabbath. It's very notable. This is not the first time Jesus has healed on the Sabbath or has broken some other Sabbath law. Now, I said to the congregation at the time, and I'll say to you, those of you who don't know me, I am, uh, I'm a professional historian, both as a researcher, but also, also as an educator. Uh, this following year, I have a contract teaching full-time at Xavier University here in Cincinnati, and all of us who are educators know that teaching is a performing art. So I highly suspect that when Jesus has done these things on the Sabbath, he has an audience and he knows he does. He may even been waiting for the audience in order to do this. So as I said, Jesus has healed on the Sabbath before. He has broken other Sabbath laws in the past. And uh, notably, Luke records a, a previous incident in uh, chapter 6, verses 6 through 4. And as well, the Mark 2 account has Jesus doing this. In, in Mark 2 specifically, Jesus says, when he's called out for healing on the Sabbath, uh, that David, David who became King David, and the men who were following him when they are running from Saul, who is persecuting them, that they ate the consecrated bread from the tabernacle, the bread that was set aside for God and that was ritually consumed by the priests, that, that in sort of their extremity to save their own lives, they ate this consecrated bread. And Jesus very famously says this line that I'm going to return to later and that I think is so important. He says on this occasion, defending his healing, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So this begs the question then, what is the purpose of the Sabbath? Well, it has several purposes. The first being restoration. And I think we can imagine this restoration being very literal, physical restoration, that our bodies and our brains need rest from our labor. And that then that very act of resting provides an opportunity to restore our human relationships with each other. When we have a break from work, and we have a, a chance to really connect with each other, but also this is a moment of restoration of our relationship with God. We stop what we are doing. We stop creating and working. We turn our attention to God. This is also a moment of reflection and realization of God's kingdom on earth. God has a greater intent for us. God has a greater vision for what life on earth could be like. And when we practice Sabbath in the way God wants us to, we are actually living out that realization and reflecting who God is. Pursuant to that, Jesus makes a very specific argument here in the synagogue on this day. He argues, since we're talking about Jewish law, that Jewish law not only permits, it actually requires that animals receive care on the Sabbath. Jesus uses the term set free from their stalls. And so if Jewish law requires this for animals, how much more would the same principle apply to a daughter of Abraham, a human being made in God's image to deserve and receive care? And Jesus says, be set free. 
So the Sabbath is an enactment of God's greater plan for mankind. We're not just talking about Sabbath. We're not just talking about rest. This is also a story of healing. So naturally we ask the question, what is the purpose of healing? In this case, in the story of the bent over woman, the healing is physical. Her body changes and her relationship to her body changes. But that is not all this story is. This is also a social and systemic healing. So in very real ways, this, this moment of history, this intervention of the divine in the material world is for this woman herself as an individual. And it is also a sign and teaching moment for witnesses. So what is the sign and what is the teaching? Brian Brock is a modern scholar on disability and theology. He is currently writing and researching, and he um, has a volume called Disability, Living into the Diversity of Christ's Body, and he has the following to say. In the Bible, physical and even mental normality, normality is a word he puts in quotes, is far less interesting than being part of God's rescuing and liberating action in the world, end quotes. That's page uh, 93, if you would like to find that, in Disability Living into the Diversity of Christ's Body. So if the Bible is less interested in restoring sort of this physical and mental idea of normality, and if it's more about rescuing, rescuing and liberating, excuse me, then we have to ask the question, how is this woman's situation a systemic problem? Well, very conveniently for me, this, this segues very nicely into my research because scholars of the body suggest, not just suggest, strongly claim that the human body never comes into the world with inherent meaning. Our bodies don't contain meaning of themselves. Rather, communities observe bodies, read them kind of like a text, and then assign it meaning. So whether that's a disability or some other kind of anomaly, whether that's gender or race or some other kind of marker, the community gives the body meaning. The body doesn't just have it on its own. Amos Young, who's a scholar and his book is called Disability in the Church, suggests that Luke introduces the particular uh, ancient Near Eastern and Roman beliefs about what disabled body means in able to undermine them. And he says that Luke does this in three ways. First of all, the bent over woman in this story is given victory over the straight standing person or people. Secondly, and I'm uh, quoting Young now, a woman's rights trump male authority. And thirdly, not quoting, the woman and the people praise God and the religious leaders are left humiliated. So now I, Katie, would like to make a note here that the text does not say that Jesus humiliated the religious leaders. Uh, I would suggest that that is not our job to humiliate other people, and we do not have examples in Jesus of humiliating others, but rather the, the experience themselves, essentially the religious leaders humiliate themselves. Uh, it's kind of passive voice here in the English translation, it suggests the humiliation is something that happens inside of the religious leaders. Jesus doesn't do that to them. 
So if this is a systemic problem, or if this is a systemic problem, as these scholars are suggesting, then what we see is that Jesus's work in the world is to raise up those on whom we insist on pushing down. And in doing this, in raising them up, transforming them and us. And if this is the case, then this story fits perfectly in this lineup. This healing in Luke is a sign to the witnesses to repent, for God will oppose them on behalf of those on whom they are standing. And secondly, this is a display of God's character, a, a God who will restore this woman both to physical and social wholeness. Now, like any good biblical story, there are some problems, or rather perhaps we bring some problems of our own to this story. And uh, I, I incorporated this into my sermon because in times, either when I have preached on God's intervention in the world, or when I've given my own testimony about times in which um, the Holy Spirit has intervened in my own life, on many occasions, friends of mine have come to me and said, your story leaves me out. Your story of healing highlights the fact that I have not received the healing that I want, that I need. If that is you, let me validate you right now. All feelings are valid. If this is what you bring to this story, good, great. These are your feelings. Let's interrogate them, okay? All feelings are valid and all thoughts and feelings ought to be interrogated. So let's do that right now. Are, are, are we upset when we read the story that Jesus doesn't heal anyone? Uh, the scriptures do not suggest that there was sort of a magical bubble in a, you know, around Jesus and that everyone who came within his radius had their bodies and brains transformed into the normative standard of bodies and brains. It seems from reading scripture that some people got healing in this historic account and some people didn't. And we can probably say that that's true for our own lives. Maybe we know people for whom we have been praying or for whom their family has been praying for a long time, maybe healing from cancer or infertility or, or trauma and nothing seems to change. Maybe that person is us. Maybe we've prayed for healing for ourselves and nothing seems to have changed. If that's the case, if we are seeing that Jesus doesn't heal everyone, this might be an occasion on which we feel frustrated and feel that God, what we're learning from the story is that God doesn't act in fair ways. Now, part of this, that's a feeling. Feelings are valid. Let's interrogate that. Part of that feeling may have to do with assumptions that we have about which bodies are better. Some of this may also have to do with our interpretation of this story, thinking that it's mainly about someone's body. Amos Young, the scholar that I mentioned just a minute ago, says that the normate worldview, let me explain what that is really quickly before I read his quote, uh, the normate worldview is the belief that the whole or at least the non-disabled body is both the norm, it's the majority of bodies, and that that type of body, and we might include brain here, is preferable. So now let me quote Amos Young. The normate worldview imparts expectations that result in Jesus the healer being an enigma rather than a source of hope. 
this story is not primarily about bodies. I don't think that's what Luke is telling us. This story about the healing of the woman is also about healing her community and not just healing them. Part of that healing is correction. And I want to assert here that you and I are a part of the community. This is not just for the witnesses who were present in the synagogue that day and then heard through word of mouth that this had happened. Both the transmission of the gospel through Christian history and through us reading Jesus's account, or excuse me, Luke's account, we become the community, we become witnesses. So if that is the case, this woman who was a real, who was an individual whose healing was for her, I am going to assert now that her healing was also for you and for us. This is also a corrective for us. If her healing is for us, then the correction is also for us. And it begs the question, are we the people fetishizing a set of rules because we believe them to be true and in doing that, ignoring the fact that the way we are living into that system of beliefs is in fact harming our neighbor? So here is now where I have a little bit of a side to the community that's listening to me to, on this recording rather than or in addition to the community that was listening to me on April 23rd. Uh, what I said then and what I will say now to anyone who is listening is that what I am about to say may end up being a real life example of how living in community is hard. What I'm about to say might make you mad, sad, scared. It may make you not like me very much. So let me acknowledge that up front. All feelings are valid. I also said then, and I'm going to say it now, but there's something I need to add to this, is that when I preach, I do so at the invitation of our professional uh, senior ministry staff who are Jeremiah Johnson and Meg Trishler. Because of that, it means I'm also under their discipline and I am in submission to them in what I do in this capacity. So on, on April 23rd, I said, if they need to correct me for what I'm about to say, I will take their correction. Uh, I want to add an update to that, that they've both told me, you're good to go. But, but that admission um, remains true when I preach in the future and when I've preached in the past. Finally, something that uh, is going to remain true is that this is my platform. I got to talk in front of people, you know, with a microphone in front of the congregation, with a music stand as a pulpit that confers a certain amount of authority on me. I got to talk for a half an hour or longer on that day, and I am doing so now on a recording that's going to go on a church website. This is my platform. Therefore, if what I'm about to say you disagree with, or you have some emotions you need to tell me about, you have some thoughts you need to tell me about, I am making you a commitment now that I will listen to that without commentary or pushback. This is my chance to talk. If you need a chance to talk, you can do that with me, either in person or over email. I prefer in person as, a, as an aside to an aside. Email stress me out. So here's what I said then and what I'm going to say now, because very sadly, the situation has not changed. Over the past few weeks, we have seen a spate of shootings that demonstrate a very severe breakdown in our fellowship with each other. A teenager rang the wrong doorbell. 
A child retrieved a ball from a neighbor's yard. A cheerleader got into the wrong car and then retreated. And in response to all of these everyday actions, their neighbors shot them. And sadly, still, there has been a predictable response from many corners. People saying, well, we just can't do anything about it. And or we have to protect the Second Amendment. Folks, I am a scholar, both of the United States and of a larger Atlantic context. I study America for herself in her own context, and I study her in comparison to other nations and empires. I have real uh, practical, critical things to say about that as an academic scholar, and I also believe with all of that study that the Constitution is the crown jewel in both American history and what America has offered to the world. And I'm also saying this as a human being who has shot, cleaned, and lived in a house with guns recently. Friends, the Second Amendment was created for humans. Human beings were not created for the Second Amendment. So I have to ask a question. How are we upholding and fetishizing what might be at ground level good things in ways that go against God's project of the kingdom? Are we breaking fellowship and harming our neighbors for the sake of our beliefs? And lastly, I have to ask, are we teachable? Or are we holding so tightly to something that Jesus cannot break through to us? Now, if I was in person with you, this would be the moment that I would hand off to the minister who is uh, proctoring communion. And I just want to say communion is the event that brings us together to the same table. It is part of what forms us as a community. Are we breaking that communion? Again, if you want to speak to me about anything that I have said, I will listen to you. You can see me at church. I'm the white lady with the short hair, sometimes glasses, wide range of clothes from Talbots. Or you can uh, access my contact information through the church, and I will listen to you. Uh, as I leave now on June 15th uh, from my home in Evanston, Cincinnati, with dogs all around me and waiting for their lunch, I just want to say a blessing over you and a prayer for your life and for your day.